This is Witchcraft Off the Beaten Path. I'm Molly Dyer. The date of today's episode is May 19th, 2021. Wherever in the world you are, I hope this finds you safe, healthy, and keeping to the six-foot social distance rule, at least in public, as often as you're able. I hope, if you're listening to me from the East Coast of the United States, that you don't have trash bags filled with gasoline somewhere in your garage or, dog forbid, your car's trunk. Please consider your fellow humans and don't hoard fuel. I ordered my masks from Zazzle that say, vaccinated, but wearing this because I don't know your life. Because I will personally continue wearing a mask for, well, for as long as I freaking feel like it, I guess. It's my right, right? I don't trust the general populace to be honest about the reasons they're not wearing a mask. So there's that. That's me. But if you are able to do so, please get vaccinated if you haven't already. The topic of today's episode is my guest, Mortellus. Mortellus is, among a very long list of other things, a third-degree lineaged Gardnerian Wiccan priestess. Mortellus is also a mortician by trade, as well as a medium, a bone thrower, a near-death experience survivor, an occasional tarot reader, and a necromancer. Yes, Mortellus is a necromancer, and believe me, we're going to talk about that. But also, very importantly, Mortellus is a published author of the book, Do I Have to Wear Black? Rituals, Customs, and Funerary Etiquette for Modern Pagans. Along with her Gardnerian Wiccan path, they also incorporate folk magic and some ceremonial magic into their personal private practice. They are devotees of the Morrigan and of the Egyptian god of the underworld, embalming and the afterlife, Anubis. That seems pretty apropos. Mortellus also operates a training coven called the Coven of Leaves in the mountains of Western North Carolina. They just recently celebrated a birthday on Beltane, happy birthday, which they share with their twins. And I'm really, really excited to have Mortellus with me today. Hello and greetings, Mortellus. Thank you. Hi. It's it's really wonderful to be here. We're going to talk about your book, Do I Have to Wear Black? And we're also going to talk about being a mortician and a witch, as well as some ghost chat. Uh, things about hauntings and necromancy. So stay tuned, kiddos, because that part is coming up. Uh, before we ever spoke in person, though, we had an email conversation that volleyed back and forth. It was pretty fun about how much we actually have in common, the weird stuff. And I think on the third or fourth email exchange, I said, hello, new friend, and you responded <laughs> in kind. Uh, so thanks for that. You're my friend now, whether you like it or not. We have so many weird things in common, though, that are so unusual. So we are clearly meant to be friends. So I really appreciate you coming on today. I think everybody is just a friend we haven't met yet. I hate some people, so I don't know that that's true for me. <laughs> no, I think about <laughs> but I mean, a- like largely, probably you're pretty correct about that. I really think, I think if, if we took all those people we hate and put them all in one room together, it'd be really easy to kill them all. I'm just kidding. It would. They might just kill themselves and take the trash out for us, too. You know, like I'm thinking, I'm thinking like Ted Cruz, Trump, those two might fight to the death. And I'm, I'm pretty sure one would eat the other, but 
that's another yeah. that's another podcast <laughs> basic human level though if we were all stuck in a survival situation we're human and we want to succeed together we'd, we'd be there for each other and you could find space with with anyone really but you're i try correct. to remind myself <laughs> You're you're correct. I, I I'm bringing us to the topic of uh, of uh, toxic positivity in just a moment. But on that on that note, uh, yeah, I think you're right about that. And I should probably be considerably more positive about. Well, I just hate people. That's the problem. <laughs> so. yeah, but what's that? What's that saying though? Like you can always choose peace and diplomacy and if it fails then you can choose anger and violence but you can rarely do it in reverse oh okay well maybe i should try to live by that as my own <laughs> personal sort of sort of axiom let's talk about what i'm sorry i'm just gonna jump right in i'm so excited about this interview because it encompasses so many things that interest me so deeply and just just so you know also one of my dearest friends is a death doula uh, and I'm I'm actually interviewing a deaf midwife in a couple of weeks too. So I'm kind of going, I'm on a deaf kick. It's so interesting to me. So if you would, please give us uh, an explanation of what you consider death positivity and tell us what that means to, to Mortellus. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, and, and before I jump into that, I have to say, we, we mentioned my twins in the intro, but I do have, I have another child, um, not a child. They're, they're 18 now. Oh, okay. Big and grown. So a shout out to Rhiannon. She's, she's probably out there like napping in the middle of the day and, and like hating me or something. That's what teenagers <laughs> do. <I think. laughs> yeah, that is, that is indeed what teenagers do. <laughs> it is. So I cohabitate with adult child and twins who just turned three and spouse and dog and nature so that's not to mention all the dead that wander about here so do you have a lot of dead wandering about on your property you've got a quite quite a bit of property out there yes we've got three acres and this property used to be um as many places in the south are uh, there were you know, there's civil war battlefields all around and right uh, we're actually really only a few miles from uh, a major uh, location of the revolutionary war as well so there's all that of course i bring home strays all the time <laughs> i work a lot with those kinds of spirits so I, I don't think about it very much i it's the same kind of noise as walking around in walmart right it's it's just human chatter all yeah. the time right that kind of interaction that that sort of energy very frantic everyone is on their own path doing their own business kind of energy but um i don't know i get used to it and i'm, I'm really good at warding i would imagine that has to be a really big thing on your list of priorities is warding it is so what I've done is, I'm giving away all my secrets now, but <laughs> the entire perimeter of my property is warded in such a way that literally any kind of incorporeal, incorporeal being can come onto the property. They just can't necessarily leave. Ah. Um, if they are benign or benevolent, they can come and go as they wish. If they are in any way malintended or problematic, they're trapped there. Okay benign or benevolent uh, entities can come and go as they will inside my house, but it is warded to keep the others trapped outside on the property. So I have like this donut of evil pissed off ghost. <laughs> that is maybe the one donut and, I don't want. 
do like uh, like group therapy every day. It's just like you can hang out here till you're uh, polite enough to leave. You're the only one keeping you here. That's kind of that's the routine. Oh wow. Okay, so I definitely uh, getting into that is definitely on my list of things uh, that we're gonna we're gonna talk we about go. in in depth in a few moments. Uh, first, though, I want to talk about. Well, no, did we talk about death positivity? Death positivity. What is death positivity? Well, that's to me? all right. Sorry. I love I, I love to digress. I'm good. I'm a rambler. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think death, death positivity is really just being willing to think about it, look at it, listen to it, and not treating it like it's something dirty, scary, ugly that we have to sort of shuffle away into a corner. I think it can mean a lot of things depending on who you are and what your thoughts are. Um, it's, it's a natural part of living. And, and I always say that it, necromancy, death magic, death, they're always really going to be about life. And life in turn is always going to be about dying. So they're, they're a part of each other's story. Okay, so the way I, I see death positivity very similarly, and for me, not as a mortician, not as a necromancer, um, I see it as something that I've been afraid of my whole life until the last few years. Um, and so death positivity for me, it's basically the same thing. It's the acceptance that it's actually a part of life. Um, it's sad, uh, but it doesn't have to be scary kind of a thing. Is that, is that sort of click with what you're saying to, to, to you, your definition? Even still, I think it, I think it can be, it's natural to be afraid or, or hesitant about something unfamiliar to you. And I think it, it can also be something that makes you nervous and you, you can still be positive about a thing that, yeah. that gives you those kinds of feelings. I mean, we're scared of things every day that we do anyway. Like every time somebody gets on a roller coaster, they're still feeling those anxieties, but they do it. Right. To be positive about death is just being willing to feel those feelings and be in the moment with them. Give them space. Okay, perfect. So if you if you met somebody today that was just absolutely horrified at the thought of dying, and I know somebody like this, someone that I'm incredibly close to, um, what would you say to them about death? I would tell them about the time that I died and what it felt like and what I saw and where I was and how at peace I felt and how much I learned about life and the world just being there and about how it isn't something to fear it's just a new adventure uh in your book you talk about that near-death experience where you did as you said to me sort of die for a little bit um and I don't think I should put quotations around that I you can see me in video but <laughs> I think I, quotations aren't necessary <laughs> there because you did die for a little bit did. I was dead for, uh, to my knowledge, about seven or eight minutes. And so you described in pretty great detail what that felt like uh, in you, in a hallway. I think what got me the biggest was that when you landed, it was on what you said, it felt like a pile of furs. And that was a warm, comfortable feeling just reading those words. So yeah, was- if that's what death is like, that is pretty fucking pleasant. But I, I mean, I can't say that for everybody, for every situation, obviously. And here's the thing, too. And if I were talking to that hypothetical person, I would tell them this. I think we have this cultural perception of 
afterlives as being this particular kind of thing. You have your average person who, even if they aren't Christian, probably say heaven or hell, like they picture some sort of placid utopia. Mm -hmm. um, you have pagan folk who probably say something like the Summerland or Valhalla or whatever, uh, pending their personal beliefs. And those two have that sort of utopia vibe about them in certain right. ways. Okay. Really just depends on what you like. But that while I, I leave space for those places to exist, the, the underworld's a big place. A lot of places to discover. But that's what's great about the underworld. Those eight minutes that I was dead felt like eternities. It felt like I lived an entire lifetime down there. Like I have whole memories of being there and I'm totally open to believing that that was my coma-addled five-year-old brain having like some kind of weird hospital experience. But even still, I took something away from that that was very <clears throat> real and miserable. Mm -hmm. I mean, he came out of there, uh, and, and we're talking about a child who <sighs> grew up in a place where I had no access to books, radio, television, anything. I was very, very mm -hmm. isolated as a child. And I had no experience of anything outside of Bibles and Jesus. Right. I came out of that place with a deity's name. Yes, there's a portion of, of that story where you actually specifically say, I won't say what she said to me, but it boils down to this. So anyway, I don't, I won't ask what she actually said. That's obviously very personal. And that's something that you keep very close to your your spirit. So, but the uh, that story was really touching. I, I always joke that it's my tent revival story, right? That's where you get up and you give testimony because this is, for me, that was an experience where I saw a place, I saw a figure, I was told words that now as an adult looking at dozens of occult books stacked all around me these are words i can find in books and i can look at and hold and read you had but, no knowledge of but uh, for that five-year-old girl yeah. didn't <laughs> they had no picture of what that could be and yet she saw it perfectly felt it remembers it it gives me goosebumps to remember it because i can still viscerally remember her arms wrapped around me. It gives me goosebumps just to hear that, and that didn't happen to me. Uh, but to that person, I would say that the underworld is not this straightforward set of four walls with a gate and sunshine and flowers. It is an expanse. There are experiences to be had. There are things to learn. There are places to discover and go and do. It's a different life in unlife. All right, and so I keep talking about the book. The book, if you uh, didn't get it before, is Do I Have to Wear Black? And it's by Mortellus. And we're gonna talk more about this book because this book is fantastic. Uh, so I, you you taught me a word reading this book and I'm probably gonna massacre this word, katabasis? Katabasis, yeah. Katabasis, oh, I wasn't that far off. No. Katabasis is the Greek word for descent. And uh, you likened it to an adolescent depression, 
while that adolescent is longing for rites of passage. And that kind of hit it home. Uh, Tabasis is something you see in art as well. It can refer to a descent in theme or tone, like when something gradually becomes darker. Mm -hmm. um, something that starts out sweet and becomes sinister, for example. Right. Uh, and I, I think it's a really interesting word to use, um, particularly when you're talking about like those descents into the self, what, you know, we talk about shadow work and that kind of stuff where we're, we're really descending into the depths of who we are and, and just those pits of emotional garbage that we right. all deal with, <laughs> deal with your crap. That's your... Right. Catalysis can be really useful for the living, not just for the dead, but um, I thought for myself, and I, I make this joke in the book, but like, you know, we have all these myths of descent, mm -hmm. right? All these stories about deities, Inanna, Nurgle, Arashkagil, um, the descent of the goddess mm -hmm. and so on. But I think about sometimes, what if these were just stories about someone who died and they became magical with the telling that over, over lifetimes and years that they became a myth what if there's some nugget of truth into in, in what those experiences are and which was why i joked that 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 was my myth of descent that was my story of catabasis that was i descended into the underworld and confronted a god and that was came back who they made me with the lessons that they shared and i don't know i think it's interesting to consider what power our words can have and our experiences can have when we share them vulnerably and just let them be what they need to be for other people. When you were explaining underground cemetery vaults in your book, you wrote about uh, an older cemetery where the gravestones jut to and fro like a mouthful of crooked teeth. And I just <laughs> wanted to tell you, I think it's charming too. I think it's adorable little kids that desperately are crying out for braces and aren't ready yet. And I think that it looks like a row of tombstones. <laughs> yeah, it does. It works both ways, actually. <laughs> thinking about the cemetery and thinking about the kid's mouth. Exactly. Rhiannon will get, she will have a fit about this, but she was one of those kids before braces. And it was just. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> And I always think about that. Okay, so along those lines, um, I wanted to talk about death, obviously, but what about your ideas of after-death op options? I think I, I remember in the book uh, that I, I think it was, don't tell me, Promission? Oh, yes, Promission. Promission. Yeah, so. And I've always been, well, not always, uh, the last several years, uh, one of my friends who was going to going to be a mortician and go to school for that mentioned to be about aquamation and as a soap maker I, and there's lye involved I kind of thought that is what I want to do and then of course I want my, you know the, the remains of my bones ground up so my husband can wear them around his neck for the rest of his life you know <laughs> so but I after hearing about promession that is very intriguing to me. Can you explain as a mortician, promession, also ex explain aquamation and promession if you can. First of all, I have to say, do you call me a mortician, but to say so implies that I have any measure of like income or like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't even have my license yet. This is terrible. I went like right from mortuary school into a pandemic. So I've been- Oh, <laughs> certainly, of, okay. Instead of doing my, um, 
like my apprenticeship and residency, I went immediately into disaster volunteer work. Mm-hmm. So I am probably the most experienced unlicensed person <laughs> you will meet because that's all I've done for like a year and a half. It's ridiculous. But when the pandemic's over, are you going to continue that? I'll probably continue doing disaster work, yes. Okay. But um, I'm actually really excited. I'm going to be doing my residency here in the state at my alma mater. So I'm really excited about finishing that portion of my journey. So that's going to be really exciting. Okay. So promotion is still considered a little bit experimental, but it's really fun. You've probably watched those like Bill Nye the Science Guy videos where they take like liquid nitrogen and put a banana in it yeah. and whack it with a or whatever. Yes, exactly. I think that's exactly what I thought of was the banana. (laughs) I I always preferred Beekman's World. There's something just fun and weird about that show. (laughs) I remember Beekman's World. The the, like grumpy penguins at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's it's pretty much exactly that. Uh, The body is submerged into a tube in which uh, liquid nitrogen is introduced and then Unfortunately, we don't get to hit them with a hammer. <laughs> they get vibrated like one of those bathtubs mm-hmm. they put old guys in when they're busting up kidney stones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like sonic waves kind of a thing. Yes. Okay. And it's cool because you get much more material back than, say, cremation. But it's very light and fluffy. And it, it evaporates all of the body's fluids, does it not? Okay. Correct. Okay. So, so it's light and fluffy. It's like you turn to snow, sort of. Yeah, it's like like a bag of that weird Christmas snow stuff. I've seen it in person. I was just it's real, it's odd and fun. Yeah. Uh, you. It's fun. You just said it's fun. <laughs> One of the the neat things about promotion is that you could you know that material is obviously completely uh, bioorganic. So you could turn it into a garden, like a. Uh, turn it in with a shovel i mean like fold it in like fold in the cheese <laughs> yeah yeah fold in the cheese what do you mean fold what is, if you say that one more time i realized it sounded like i was saying transform it into a girl <laughs> uh, but no you could you could put that directly into the earth and that's great um cremation gives you about two pounds of really dense material which is ground bone mm-hmm. um so it's it's 100 calcium carbonate there's no um organic material left of say flesh or those kinds of things it burns away right uh so one thing that i i i'm gonna like ruin everyone's life right now those <laughs> those pods and things you can buy that like grow a tree out yeah. of your remains unfortunately for anyone who gardens you know that uh, the tree can't actually get anything out of pure calcium carbonate it can't take it in in any way so the remains just sort of sit around the roots they never go into the tree well, that's kind of gross and, actually <laughs> I know. and because because of uh, the temperatures at which cremation happens there's no genetic material left either there's no dna so you're you're never part of that tree you're just sitting under it kind of just a pile of ash and maybe some bones I have to have to do like the mortician soapbox. It's not ash. Okay. There's no ash at all. Really? Okay. So the, um, the organic material that's left is just ground bone. Correct. Okay. All right. Don't be like very negligible, like minute particles of ash, and all of that ash will be like 
wood from your casket. Oh, and okay. Bits of clothes that burned up. Okay. So the, the the biological material that you're made of burns away. Pretty much. And the ash. Okay. The 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 bone is left, not ash. Okay. All right. Now I'm learning a bunch of stuff. So, so uh, think about like your your oven can get to what 500 degrees mm -hmm. and can't hold it very consistently. Right. A crematory retort gets to a, a standard cremation is around 1800 degrees. It can be as much as 2200 degrees, depending on the person, mm -hmm. um, their height, weight, size, and so on. Right. Um, a person with more body fat will burn at a much higher temperature. Think about throwing like a really lean hamburger on the grill versus like a really fatty cheap hamburger or whatever like yeah i would splatter uh, like when you cook a really fatty hamburger <laughs> i would cause a lot of grease i think crematory <laughs> retorts have like a box underneath for catching um you know ashes and bits of bone and like the zippers from your pants we have to go from with a magnet and like pull out all that little hardware from oh, your yeah the lock from your casket and all that stuff's in there uh, if you had an artificial hip, those get pulled out. The family could have that back if they ask, but mostly people don't. So they go into a recycling bin. Oh. They're often, uh, medical devices like that are often donated to third world countries that recycle them for, for low income surgeries. God, I Things did like, not expect to learn all this today. This is really yeah. fascinating though. I really want to save up enough, uh, like replacement hip metal caps mm -hmm. to make like a set of T-bowls. <laughs> to make to make what? A set of little tea balls. Oh. Like I have something just like lined up on a windowsill. That's so morbid, <laughs> and I want to do that too now because that's like I'm a, I'm a, a bone collector and teeth and things like that. You know what I mean? So that's very uh, interesting to me, and I'm very very weird. I get it. I totally get it. Have you ever had like a plastic Easter egg? Mm -hmm. You've got the long end and the short end. Yeah. The, the replacement hip cap looks like the short end of, of the plastic Easter egg. I know, I know, I know several people with replacement hips, and I'm going to tell them that now. <laughs> I wanted to go back to say um, the temperature can flare up, and your body fat, if, if you have naturally a lot of body fat, which can happen in the tiniest people mm -hmm. and the biggest people, um, they can fill that tray up, oh. and that can sometimes catch fire. <laughs> you open the door to check, and this fat will rush out at you. <laughs> Which can be like really horrifying. <laughs> uh, I am almost wordless right now. That was really not, that was really disturbing. <laughs> you would not want like really hot like grease from a deep fryer or something to rush out onto your body. No, it's no. kind of the same thing. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Okay, so I'm definitely gonna be aquamated, I think, so that, that doesn't happen. So would you explain how aquamation works? It's a very cool process. Yeah. Um so I, I'm probably giving away more about the part of the world I live in than I should, but I actually live only about 30 minutes from the only aquamation facility in my state and the only one that aquamates uh, both pets and, and humans. It's the Clay Barnett Funeral Home in Shelby, North Carolina. They made it legal in our state and immediately rescinded it. <laughs> had already bought the equipment so they were grandfathered in okay all right i don't know yet if it's i think pet aquamation is legal in texas but i don't know if it is for human remains yet i'm not sure i'll have to ask um people my death people doula are, friend people are real strange about it they tend to use words like 
flushing your loved one down the drain and this, that, and the other thing. And here's the thing, really. Aquamation uses not as much water as you would think. Mm-hmm. And is much better for the environment. It's a much greener option than cremation. And after the fact, the water is sterile, mm-hmm. clean, drinkable. It goes right back into the system. Right. Uh, the use and think about being part of the world in that way. I mean, someone's watering their garden. Kids are running in the sprinkler under you. Like the families are drinking it and cooking their food with it. I think that's poetic and wonderful, but. But then you have like the propane industry lobbying in state senate going, they're flushing your loved ones down the drain because they want to sell more, more gas. <laughs> That's the problem. So while we're talking about that, I want to talk about the mortuary mafia. I, I, I quipped it one day. I, I really just meant it to mean like these big corporate funeral homes that are just, they're, they're all about their dollar signs and, and just yeah. sort of pushing around state legislation and funeral boards that don't necessarily serves a common good like their their role is to teach people to be afraid of death and the dead so that they they feel like they're providing a service that you can't get anywhere else and that's that's bad the funeral that's industry bad. is cutthroat from what i understand i mean that yeah. sounds kind of you know like an oxymoron but uh but it, i understand that it certainly can be <clears throat> very very dog eat dog kind of a Dan, and it's very, very hard for, for younger people, particularly women, to mm-hmm. break into. Um, it's one of the few industries left that is segregated, which is what crazy to me. It is? That's happening all around you right now. Nobody thinks about it. Are, are you talking about racially segregated or sexually segregated? Racially segregated. Think Holy about your own shit. town. Okay. Think about your own town right now. Mm-hmm. Just picture it in your mind. Whoever's listening, picture your town. Mm-hmm. I bet you can think of the black funeral home in your town. Holy shit! I can. I can. Right. There are there are a few, and you're yeah. absolutely fucking right. And I had nobody thinks about that. I think I know. Well, I mean, me personally, never thought about it. But the fact that I can recognize it immediately when you said think right. about it, that makes <laughs> me feel really non-observant and and there's certainly i mean there are some religiously segregated funeral homes like you'll see jewish funeral homes for example sure and it makes an amount of sense because Mm -hmm. their processes for death are really different right than the average but i think there's this divide in the funeral industry where for those listening i'm the downy whitest person like i glow in the fucking dark like i'm so and i recognize <laughs> i recognize my privilege and i recognize that there are problems inherent with the system so if i say something shitty please fucking call me out on the internet but if i were a person of color i wouldn't want white people touching my dead either <laughs> like so i can see why like you start your own funeral home your own space yeah. and have that safe space separate from and that's just kind of how it's gone for a long time and and i tell people all the time you know, we've been in a pandemic, mortuary workers, death care workers, we're not getting treated the same as healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. It's real tough for people out there. I often say, go go take a box of donuts or something to your local funeral home, your local mortuary or whatever. So I, I'm going to say now, pick, pick the black funeral home in your community if you choose to do that. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, everybody's working real hard and everybody deserves to know that they're being remembered and... We, we see them, you know, yeah. we see the effort of all these death care workers. 
All right. So uh, we are going to continue talking about death, and I'm going to get to necromancy because I do want to talk to you about that. I just want to point out, though, that in the chapter in your book called Restorative Arts and Craft, that you write pretty succinctly about how to make life and death masks. There is a ritual-esque kind of instructional uh, for how to create a shroud for your loved one with instructions on making a no-sew shroud and a sewn shroud. There's even, you even included an instructional on how to make a coffin. Yeah. I never knew how to make a coffin. That's pretty fucking awesome. I mean, no, seriously. You build your own and use it for a bookshelf till you die. Till you put legs on it and make it a coffee table and use the storage inside. Or would it be a coffin table? <laughs> uh, you know, cool. Uh, but I also <laughs> wanted to say that you, you wrote these incredible funerary rituals um, or rites or customs for, all right, so if you're listening to this, listen, for British traditional Wicca, crypto-paganism, discordianism, druidry, uh, eclectic Wicca, heathenry, Hellenism, uh, is it Kemetism, which is Egyptian? Okay, and and Thelema. Uh, there are, are we some? There might be more. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I may have missed some. There, um, But of particular interest to me was the Egyptian rite for opening the mouth of the deceased. I had never heard that before. And it, like at first, glance it seems kind of macabre a little bit morbid to open the mouth of the deceased but then when you take into consideration it's so they can have their senses returned to them in the afterlife it was absolutely beautiful and um if i can uh just describe really quickly it involves the the priest or priestess or priestess uh symbolically opening the deceased's mouth with a ritual knife and then touching that knife gently to the eyes, nose, and ears to restore those senses as well in the afterlife, and then offering grain to the deceased by holding it up to their mouth. Uh, that is absolute. I mean, I don't want to be buried. I don't want to have a funeral. But if I were, that's what I would want. That is absolutely gorgeous, beautiful. You could still have that ritual before any other service. And just for the record, you're you're offering items of all the senses, right? You're, you're putting words to be heard, ah. items to be seen, the incense is burned to smell, okay. how you're touching. Like it, It's about recognizing that, particularly in comedic practice and certainly in other practices as well, that mm -hmm. The body being preserved is a huge part of parts of them remaining in the afterlife. Um, I subscribe to the nine part theory of the soul and each of those pieces of you can go on to have a different sort of existence after you die. But for that eternal self, that that part of you that might become a guide or the mighty dead or, or whatever words you like to use, preserving the body is important and being being conscious of giving them a full set of tools in the afterlife to function with is also important so ensuring that they can speak and see and hear and smell those things are are huge and and i always thought about that when i was in mortuary school because as a rule we close the mouth right sealed, sealed up completely <laughs> We always see in movies, like somebody dies and everybody's, oh, they, and they, they do the same thing every time. They smooth the eyes down, right? Like this, right? 
Yeah, they just run out of hands, the, the eyes closed. That does not happen. No, they'll pop right the fuck back open. Yeah. Yes, they do. Yeah, that's... The natural state of your eyes is open. The natural state of your mouth is open. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that can be very frightening for your family members, your loved ones, because, I mean, certainly your eyeballs are going to start to glaze over and sink like a fish in the meat market. Like, that's not oh, pretty. <laughs> that was a great that. description. I can see that with my brain eyeballs right now <laughs> just as an interjection i i always feel like i'm somewhere in the middle of being like very death positive green burial friendly home burial friendly kind and also being like a shill for the funeral industry which is terrible <laughs> but i i really think and and stay with me i do think that the funeral industry has its place oh for sure here's why we all have these romantic ideas about our death, particularly as pagans. We, we all want to be rolled in a beautiful shroud with flowers, and we want to die when we're 80, comfortably in our bed, and placed into the ground by all our loved ones in the backyard, and like it's a thing, and mm -hmm. it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that maybe you're not zoned for a home burial. Right. Maybe the only green burial space in your area is $11,000 for a space. Right. Maybe you died in your 20s getting hit by a car and your body is in a sack yeah. not everyone dies beautifully or comfortably and certainly not in a circumstance that makes all those ways perfect the funeral industry is there to serve you we are servants of the people at the end of the day to make sure that everyone gets closure and what they need loving compassionate death care it's so, necessary it's a, it's a thing that we need and, and I think we have a, a lot of, I mean, there's certainly not a lot of books about death for pagans, but I mean, we see a lot of books about green burials and home burials and those kind of things, mm -hmm. but we don't have anything out there that helps people in minority faiths talk to the funeral industry. Right. It doesn't teach them to communicate with each other. And the reality is that you're probably, probably most of us will have to deal with the funeral industry. So let's work together and let's understand each other better. That's my, that's where I'm coming from. That's my big place. So if we have these practitioners who now understand, like from reading my book, maybe they never thought about the fact that just to make themselves more pleasant to their loved ones who are gonna see them in a viewing or visitation, their mouth has probably been sewn closed from the inside. Yeah. So if they know that now, they can say to that funeral person in their death care planning, Hey, I'm a comedic. It's very important to me that my mouth be able to open. Mm -hmm. So after the viewing, after the service, before I go in the hole or the crematory, remove that stitch. That's a small thing that's so important. While we're on that topic of just sort of communicating and learning things about the funeral industry, I, I think knowledge is power and just sort of knowing what's out there for you is huge. Mm -hmm. We were talking earlier about sort of alternative burial options. Yeah, we've got, we've talked about cremation. We've talked about promotion. Mm -hmm. we're, we're like, jiggle your dry ice body. <laughs> um, one, one thing that I'm really fond of, and I think it's really interesting for pagan individuals in particular, is resummation. Resummation, is that what you're saying? Yes, a is a process by which you are 
composted and turned into dirt. Uh, Resumation is a really fun pro- uh, process. So basically, all kinds of farms and, and agricultural processes already compost remains, like a lot of um, cattle or, mm-hmm. or just unusable portions of, of meat, different things like that are composted all the time. We just don't think about it. Um, you oh, can I even think we compost- don't actually think about it very often. <laughs> <laughs> you can even compost bone. It's just sort of a long process. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly enough, this process was tested sort of in my part of the world at the, the body farm at Colwee in Western North Carolina, which um, I've had the, the extreme pleasure of knowing a few people at over time. Okay. Um, one of the things that they wanted to accomplish, they knew that this process wouldn't really fly with with, uh legislators if it took a long time Mm -hmm. they knew that it it needed to compost the the body and the bones fully and completely right in a very short amount of time which if you have a garden or you've ever done composting you know it's hard because it needs to have a lot of air but also be very hot yes (laughs) so that's a that's a big process but they they managed to sort out those challenges thanks to wonderful donors to the body farm they were able to do that and it's now in place um, in one or two places and i hope to see it in more places in the united states but by this process your body is completely composted returned to the earth you are made into earth and that earth is returned to your loved ones yeah so where with cremation you get about two pounds of ground bone give or take with promotion you get well it's not two pounds but it's more bulk it's like a a few little bags of of remains mm-hmm. promessed remains with resummation you get a couple of wheelbarrows full of dirt wow really you get a lot. yes so it's like life-sized dirt it's, it's that amount of dirt right a okay. lot of dirt so imagine for you witchy types out there that you have your body resummated into earth mm-hmm. you get back all this wonderful rich dark composted garden dirt turn it into a garden bed there's there's a graveyard right in someone's yard for doing magical work imagine potting a variety of plants and giving them to individuals in your faith group or family members and loved ones and you're part of that forever that's amazing and you have so much to work with, which I think is really wonderful. Also, think about it in terms of a memorial garden for that person. That's that is incredible. Or imagine, I mean, like you've got you've got some places that you really love. Like there's a there's an arboretum near me that I, I that I adore. And having a loved one sneak in a, a cup full of your dirt and have it turned into the right, like <laughs> that's wonderful. And you can just be a part of everything that is the, that is the witchiest thing i've ever heard right now have the two or three wheelbarrows of dirt turned into a community garden in your hometown and let small children grow tomatoes in it. you know i think that's amazing that's so fantastic really that is fantastic okay i want to ask you a question because in your book you say and i will quote you here ask me sometime about my spiritual familiar <laughs> so i want to ask you about your spiritual familiar you asked me about the one woo-woo thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if it's a topic that's off limits, that's perfectly no, fine. No, okay, all right. People just don't ask me very often. Okay, well, yeah. I take I take instructions, you know, pretty literally sometimes. Ask me yeah. about means I'm going to ask you about it. 
you're only the third person to ever ask. <laughs> I can I can I can settle for being number three. That's fine. <laughs> All right, let's do this. Let's do this. So I work a lot with with dead, obviously, and I'm I'm not unfamiliar with uh, visual representations of the spiritual world. That's pretty common to me, mm -hmm. and, and sure. I like to separate out my mundane from my magic so that I can. I can treat my mundane issues properly. Right. Everybody do walking in the woods is not an antidepressant. No, it's not exactly. <laughs> no, get therapy. Better living by chemistry. Right, exactly. So, <clears throat> one of my hobbies. This is a terrible hobby. Is I like I like recreating the absolutely nuttier than a Snickers bar old leg high magic rituals mm -hmm. in like the Greek magical papyri and stuff like these some of these spells are just whack <laughs> they're, really, really they're whack. incredibly detailed <clears throat> and incredibly <laughs> cumbersome yeah correct so I, I wanted to recreate this ritual I found for um, conjuring a spirit familiar or conjuring a daemon basically um, very very specific mm -hmm. One, you have to have a hawk skull for it, which that is, is very specific and also deeply illegal to possess. So, of course, for those listening, I never had one. Okay, ever. ever. I did not wait months until someone hit one with a car and I found it in the streets. That did not occur. I did not then collect it off <laughs> the street, clean its bones, and then bury them after my ritual. I did not do that. That never happened. I can see happen. how somebody might think it happened never happened it did not happen but specifically did not happen the ritual also involves in addition to many other things sitting on a roof and watching the sunset and staying all night until you watch the sunrise awake yes you yes. must watch okay so you're holding vigil for the sun to return okay all right and one of the particular components of this spell is all your hair. You have to cut off all your <laughs> oh. <laughs> But you definitely didn't do that. I spent the entire pandemic growing out my shaved ass head. That's <laughs> All right, sister. I'm, I'm going to tell you right now. That's something I've always wanted to do. But I didn't know that it was going to be a requirement in some sort of comedic, you know, rituals. Hair is hair makes good magic. It I does. Mean, it does. One, it takes you forever to grow. Mm -hmm. I can leave blood, but I have that back in ten minutes after I eat a cookie. Like <laughs> right, just, right. The shit. <laughs> blood, spit, fingernails. That stuff. It's not a big deal, you know. Right, but cut off all your hair. Your ego is in it. You're tied right. to that. Right. And part of the magic is the sacrifice of it. You have to live with seeing yourself every day and what you get. Sure. Like, that's a big magic. So like four years ago, here I am sitting on the roof of a chicken coop because it didn't say how tall that roof had to be. And I did not want to roll to my demise. <laughs> As a bald woman, you know. Shaving my head, <laughs> was the weirdest Britney moment. Oh my God. <laughs> oh man. Did you do it on top of the chicken coop? You shaved your head on the chicken coop? Right on, man. That's amazing. It did not say how tall the roof had to be. Just and a roof. I that in the ancient world there were no skyscrapers so i felt like the chicken coop would do it that seems pretty that seems pretty reasonable to me and there were no skyscrapers in ancient times you're you're right about that so, so here we are i don't know maybe maybe like the top of a pyramid or something i don't know 
Is that really a roof? I mean, like, it's kind of, I don't think that's a roof. I think you did the right thing. That's what I'm saying. We can all, we, everyone write me emails. Is the top of a pyramid a roof? Does this count? (laughs) (laughs) We'll have a poll after. Oh my gosh. The best part is that you shaved your head on the roof of a chicken coop. That's my, that's my favorite part. Probably funnier that I used like the dog trimmers because it was the only shaver that I had. uh, Nevertheless. Whatever works. (laughs) Whatever works. So back to your spirit familiar. So I'm doing this ritual uh-huh. to con my daemon mm-hmm. and the sun comes up and fucking nothing happens. <laughs> I mean, um, okay. <laughs> Shit. Very anticlimactic. <laughs> I shaved my fucking hair. <laughs> it's like that song, I shaved my legs Did for I this. Did I shave my legs for this? I yeah. I shaved my head for this. That's what <laughs> Seriously. So I go to bed later that night. Mm-hmm. And it was at that time that the shadows in my home decided to uh, be a sentient consciousness uh-huh. and coalesce into a being. So I guess my ritual worked. It's, and, it sounds like it. Otherwise, that could be problematic. Um, my familiar is named Veed. It's not really his name, but it's what I call him. And he is a crow most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he tells me he's made of the stuff in between things. And his job is more or less to eat grief. So I send him to people who are grieving and bereaved. And that's the work he does for me. So That's a pretty damn good spiritual familiar. He eats grief. So is that where A Crow and the Dead comes from? Is that where that name comes from? More or less. Look at me doing math. That's amazing. All right. But also, we, you and I were talking before the show mm-hmm. about a tattoo that I have that Morpheus Ravenna did for me. It is a beautiful crow, the same crow I use as my icon. And, and I, you know, if the Morgan collects the dead and they are they are her crows, mm-hmm. I, I died and she certainly collected me. So I'm just one of her crows taking care of the dead. I want to talk about ghosts and spirits with you and specifically your interactions with them and maybe hauntings or removals, communications, etc., etc. I uh, can remove boogers sometimes. I do have some friends though that have a particularly uh, sticky booger who does not want to leave. They call him the butt toucher because he'll occasionally touch their butts. Uh, so let's talk about ghosts and you, you've got, you've got the donut at your, at your property, right? That's full of what I would call <laughs> boogers probably that are not really allowed to come, come in the house. So, uh, um, oh, and I do sometimes you do invite like the, the, the dirty boogers and nasty boogers sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Are they hard for you to eject? Absolutely not. Oh. It's my home. I get to tell one to leave just like any other guest. Mm-hmm. And really, my purposes for that kind of space is to rehabilitate a bit and and help them find some direction. Okay. And there are spaces within my home that are warded where they cannot go. Like, for example, the bathroom and the bedroom and my adult child's room. Mm -hmm. She doesn't like them uh, to be in her space when she's sleeping. Mm -hmm. I like the quiet when I'm trying to sleep. Sure. And uh, nobody needs to look at my ass when I'm in the shower. So that's, <laughs> that's where my boundaries. <laughs> okay. Um, I've uh, sort of established this, this space where uh, they have someone to see them and talk to. And that's 
that's what's needed half the time. And there's so many that are forgotten that, that don't have markers or anyone to remember their name. And sure. These, I'd probably take a different approach than most with the dead. I think, I think, I think that's safe to say. I don't necessarily like to oust them from places. Okay. And here's why. One, they probably have just as much right to be there as you. Okay. Think about the fact that over all of history, a lot of things have happened right where you're sitting right now, aside from you and your house. Sure. <laughs> and particularly if you're renting your space, like you're just as transient. Mm -hmm. So what right do you have to kick out a spirit that's been there for hundreds of years? Well, damn it. Now I feel bad for knocking on walls and shit, you know? I mean, <laughs> god damn. <laughs> you make, make peace, have a conversation first. Right. What, what do you need from me? Mm -hmm. How can we cohabitate and how can we get along here? Right. Um, two, um, some places are just going to be intrinsically haunted because they are a good doorway between. Right. It right. could have to do with the layout of the land, the magnetic fields there, or just how the energy of the place is. So remove one ghost today, there'll be 10 more tomorrow, and you just can't do anything about that. And really, I mean, you could talk to someone like Lonnie of Weird Web Radio, and he'd probably tell you that that's just as holy a place as Stonehenge, like somewhere that is a natural entryway into the underworld. Lastly, I think that it's really a very modern and very Christian idea to think of the soul Mm -hmm. as a singular thing. I don't think enough witches, pagans, whatever, take enough time to think about what it means to have mighty dead and reincarnation and ghosts. How can people exist in all those places if we are just reincarnated? Why are there spirits at all? Two, if our dead are reincarnated, why do they come to us as mighty dead? Okay. If we look at the soul more like ancient people did, the Greeks sort of pictured the soul as three parts. Heathens also looked at the soul as sort of three parts. Ancient comedics used a nine-part piece of the soul. That's what I use, and I, I've sort of based my own system around that, which you can read about in my next book, which I'm turning in in a couple of weeks. Yay, gonna we're going to talk about that before we're done today here, too. Each of those pieces of you has the potential to be reincarnated, exist in an afterlife, haunt, etc. And all of those pieces of you have distinct characteristics, distinct purposes, distinct memories. So if we look, if we look at parts of the soul that might become separated from a person while they're still alive, you could be being haunted by yourself and you can't easily remove that. For example, um, the ancient comedics called the shadow, the shut, shut the shadow. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I refer to that part of the soul as the umbra. This is part of you that is, it's a mirror to all your light. It's carrying all of the darkness you're capable of and all the darkness that you've experienced. It's this other side of the coin and it's done so much service for you by carrying all of that difficulty. It carries all the ugliness that you've healed out of yourself. When people talk about doing shadow work and about confronting all of those 
subconscious darknesses. I really view that as really differently from the part of the soul that I refer to mm -hmm. as the umbra. That part of you just is. In Cometicism, that, that piece of you was an agent of the gods of death. They had their own agency. They went to do work separate from you. And um, statues, photographs, all those things carried some piece of your shadow. And that the shadow is the weight of your impact in the world. That, that Umbra has done, has done so much for so many of us carrying pain that we don't have the strength for but in moments of great trauma it can be separated from you and think about the angry vengeful spirit that that part of you might be and where they might go and what they might haunt and how do you remove a spirit that has agency attachment to a living person and all the justification in the world for their anger. Well, shit. I mean, seriously, that I have to say, I I have been able to sense uh, spirit for a very long time. Usually, it's through my nose. A lot of times, it's been through my ears. Uh, and fortunately, I will say, fortunately, I don't encounter a lot of physical manifestation, and I'm glad about that because that frightens me. I can't help but think uh, that had I ever considered it like that, that I might have been a little less frightened of it. So, well, shit. I mean, like, seriously, I feel like I've wasted a lot of time. Uh, have you have you ever been frightened by spirit? That's a tough question. So, first of all, you have to imagine, and I, oh my God, I know every time this comes out of my mouth, it's like a fucking asshole, but... <laughs> <laughs> Imagine a five-year-old waking up out of a coma, mm -hmm. able to see dead people. Able to see like, dead people. Like a tiny fucking Haley Joel Osment yeah. with filthy mouth who just spent hundreds of years in the underworld. That's what Yeah. <laughs> I'm a kid now. Everything is scary. Everyone I live with is like evil. And what the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's tough and that can be scary. And it took me... Um, chunks of my life to really find peace with it and work with it and understand it and I have not done that work that's to, that's the work I have not done is dealing with that fear it certainly wasn't even though early in my 20s I was already working with the dead and I was doing that kind of work I was not ready to put that out to the community mm -hmm. or another decade because I needed to know that I had spent that time in therapy and yeah. conversations in study and really working with the dead to find my footing mm -hmm. because I think we have a lot of people and I'm not I'm not picking on anyone in particular I'm just a general comment we have a lot of people out there who uncover something really cool about themselves oh I'm this kind of psychic or whatever and immediately it's a service for pay yeah. without taking the time to really sit in it and mm -hmm. with it. And I'm certainly not deriding anyone for, for income or for putting themselves out there and being vulnerable like that. But I do think it's really important to sit with it so that members of our community and that we're consciously and ethically 
providing information and skills to people if we're doing that. We can answer questions in a meaningful way and in an educated manner as, as best we can, or have the self-confidence to say, actually, I do not know that. Yeah. <laughs> Just go ahead, someone else. That's a pet peeve of mine. If if someone doesn't know what it is of which they're trying to speak, just say it. I mean, you don't have to like act like you know something you don't know. I think that's a stigma in the pagan community. If if someone doesn't know, then they're new and they're not necessarily of value to listen to. So the way to get around that is to just act like you know. I think there's this, I've never said this out loud to anybody. It's probably going to be like one of those mean hot takes or something like I'm not <laughs> just write me your emails people write me nice ones I never get <laughs> I think there's there's a kind of two issues at play there one we can all pretty much agree that you know, the neo-pagan movement as we know it was born in trad craft gardnerian wicca followed by alexandrian wicca and so on mm-hmm. and these are traditions that have a practice of like a curriculum of degrees that you earn there's you have to learn things and you finish you're calling yourself a high priestess priest priestess whatever and you've earned that and there's there's the, the strength of these people behind you saying yes i taught them everything and they're using words like the craft of the wise to describe themselves so like point a we've got this sort of system Mm -hmm. and then point b we hit like the 90s or so and we've got things like silver raven wolf also no shade there but we see more things like eclectic wicca mm-hmm. and it's like you're a witch if you call yourself a witch yeah but there's still this idea that witches are of the wise right mm-hmm. and i think that we spent a long time with this perception that if you're calling yourself a witch you are saying i have this knowledge but when you get up as an eclectic and and decide that's what you are you haven't all necessarily put in the same work equally so mm-hmm. we have a sort of disparity now of both expectation and reality i don't know if you heard uh my rant episode i i spoke about that actually uh it's very trendy to have quote unquote witch vibes you know and that's kind of like do you really do you really have witch vibes or was that a cute shirt you know truly though and and i mean this for anybody listening i don't think there's a thing in the world wrong with declaring yourself a witch and being in your power and i also don't think there's a thing in the world wrong with saying i'm a witch and i don't know much yet absolutely you know and i i have a lot of listeners who are in that in that boat where i'm a witch i'm calling myself a witch and i'm learning how to be a witch that's fine that's fine. You you don't get to start though on the fourth floor. You know, if you're a witch, you got to walk in the front door like the rest of us did and learn from the ground up. So I so I am a gardenerian. Obviously, I have that that tradcraft sort of experience. So I'm that asshole. Oh god. <laughs> But I run a teaching coven and I, you know, obviously I interact with teaching people all the time. And one of the things I always tell new people to do in my own coven, and I'll put it out there for your listeners, they might enjoy this assignment, is day one, dig into finding a specialty. 
What is your area? What are you good at and what do you like? Declare a specialty like you're a major in med school. Do you do divination? Mm -hmm. Are you great at healing? Are you good at plant? We all make fun of those memes, right? But don't. Pick a specialty and really study it. Dig in. And maybe you decide later you don't like it and you change your major. Yeah. I think when people do that and they focus, they really put more time into really learning a lot about an area and you'll walk away a more skilled witch really at the end of the day. I think that's a great method because just starting, I mean, I remember just starting out, uh, it's overwhelming. You are inundated with authors and books and posters and symbolism and where do you fucking start so that's a great way to to start that i think like i tell people all the time i might be an expert in gardenarian wicca because i've been through those degrees and learned those things Mm -hmm. i'm an expert in necromancy and death magic because i've put in the time and I, i know those things and i read stacks of material on that topic but i'm kind of shit as a psychic i'm bad at divination Mm-hmm. I'm bad at a lot of stuff. And I know what you're thinking. Doesn't your bio <laughs> Wait a say, minute, you don't, because you're not that great as a psychic. <laughs> doesn't your bio say you're a medium, and doesn't your bio say you read tarot and stuff? Ah, mm. We've caught me in some bullshit. Let me explain. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't actually read tarot. I'm terrible at it. I know it. I know the system. I could sit there and do it, but it's it's not fun or interesting, and I don't like to do it. It doesn't speak to you. Uh, I just use them as a prop so that people will come up and talk to me and then I lay cards out while I listen to the dead people they brought with them tell me stuff. Oh, it says right here you need to break up with your fucking boyfriend. Mm. Is that what that card says? It does today. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes I tell people what I'm experiencing and sometimes I don't, but that's that's how I read. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not a medium. I'm truly not. I use that word because it's the only word I have to describe what I am. I really truly think a medium is a very talented psychic that has a full set of senses, Mm -hmm. seeing, hearing, smelling, speaking, and so on. I've just been dead. Mm -hmm. So I still occupy that space a little bit. That's really different. Yeah, that's understandable. There's a a misconception too uh, in witchcraft and paganism that you have to be adept at all of the things. And you know, right. I mean, like, I can't read runes for shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I, but I'm good I'm at tarot, listening. and I'm great at sigils. For everyone listening, I don't know a goddamn thing about astrology. Why do you all love it? I don't. <laughs> so Amy Blackthorne, who wrote the introduction to uh, "Do I Have to Wear Black," and she's so fabulous. She fabulous. is, and she's a friend of mine as well. We went camping together once a thousand years ago. Uh, she is very adept at astrology and yeah. I have wrangled her. I mean, I have gotten her to, <laughs> to agree to do an astrology episode with me because again, I suck at it. I'm an Aries with Libra and Aries. And that's about all I can tell you. Uh, so, I don't know things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, that's not my, that's not my wheelhouse. Uh, you know, so you don't have to be adept at everything like you said pick a major and if that major fails you or you fail it pick a different major and you can double major or triple major but you don't have to be able to do everything all of the witchy things you don't have to be an expert at that i think that's important for you to say and with that i'm gonna change the topic into necromancy because uh 
I don't personally know a whole lot of necromancers, uh, but I would like, if you can, and I know a lot of people are excited about this part too. I am too. So uh, if you can, please give us a little history about necromancy, a little bit of a, you know, like if people don't know what it is, that's fine. A little history, maybe your experience with it and your advice for those that are interested in learning about necromancy and any appropriate warnings you might want to give about practicing necromancy because it ain't always cake that's true it is not always cake. it's usually corpses <laughs> yeah i mean like <laughs> that was masterfully done ma'am <laughs> the, the history of necromancy went a little bit like this step one um and, and for everyone listening, I, I'm going to speak mostly to European practices here. Every culture on the planet has death practices. Uh, my area is somewhere in like Greek and Roman stuff forward. So okay. I try and be really conscious about what I'm, where I'm at. But okay. So step A, we have um, ancient Greece where necromancers were like your friendly neighborhood death worker. They uh, did service for the community. You really wouldn't have seen any sort of uh, delineation between a necromancer and any other type of magical practitioner. It was just mm -hmm. a really common use kind of word. And they were uh, service persons, like everybody would call on them for any number of tasks. We can flash forward to about the 15th century where a bunch of dusty catholics were mad about dusty catholics. mostly people using necromancy to treasure hunt that was kind of the thing it's done mm. um they all decided that when people are talking to the dead they're actually talking to demons pretending to be dead people which sounds like sort of an elaborate scam it was like the nigerian prince scam of yeah. of the 15th century <laughs> <laughs> I have come up Uncle Jeff, but actually it's Pazuzu or whatever. <laughs> then you have stuff like like the crazy drummer story, which is one of my favorite like necromancer haunting stories, but we'll, we'll skip that guy. And then <laughs> we'll do that next the, the next episode because I'm having you back. That's clear. Oh, we can talk all about okay. that guy. Yes, it's my favorite. Um then we move forward into like 17 1800s you see stuff like more dusty catholics <laughs> so it's like like elvis levy and john d types and all those sorts the ones you see in all those woodblock prints yes nowadays yes. um saying yes we're doing the good kind of necromancy right of jesus and we have done only the good type of summoning through words and books and money because we're white men right and um, dusty white men at and that. the bad kind <laughs> with blood and so forth yeah they, they were all terrible terrible mm -hmm. <laughs> the lot of them eliphas levy said in transcendental magic it's doctrine and ritual a book we all like to quote that there are two kinds of necromancy, that of light and that of darkness. The evocation by prayer and pentacle and perfumes and the evocation by blood, imprecations and sacrileges. He goes on to say that he has only practiced the first and advised no one dedicate themselves to the second. But who among us has not 
dabbled in some imprecations once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> that fancy word for those listening is just really like a hex or a curse or some kind of negative magic, really. It's sort of a catch-all for bad magic. <laughs> Black magic. And then you can flash forward to anything between the 1970s and today, where we had uh, movies and video games and fiction that made mm -hmm. necromancers like glowing green people with skulls and zombies and whatever. And then we had like pseudo occult books written by bigots in novelty Halloween fonts. So there's a lot of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've read I've read some terrible stuff. In. Oh, I think. I mean, there's there's no shortage of terrible stuff. You you asked about warnings for necromancy. Here's my warning to you. Yeah. Uh, pick up whatever book you thought about reading and flip to the back. If there's no bibliography, please put it down. Um, if the bibliography references Nazis, put it down also. Oh, God. <laughs> um, <laughs> If anywhere in there is a chapter that explains to you how lady necromancers only exist if they like have wet dreams every day, put it down. And <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, have you actually read that? Oh yes, indeed. Oh my God. Okay. I'm not right. naming names, but they're out there. We can Google that shit. There I mean, some, there's some modern books that use words like non-consent and this isn't for gay people. And uh, so just stay away from that stuff. And I promise I'm trying to write you a better book right now. What is necromancy? Necromancy is just... Just somebody that wants to raise a nice family. <laughs> I, I'm, sure, I'm sure all of you will find some... Maybe you are this person. Maybe you're thinking to yourself right now. A necromancer is someone who does divination with the dead. And you're a seomancer because seomancy is necromancy with ghosts and spirits. But no, I do work with physical remains, human remains. You actually, on your website, yes. uh, you sell some very interesting products like death water. I do, corpse water and so on. Corpse water, my apologies, Sorry. corpse water. And that is what? I know what it is, but that is what for those simply, listening. It's simply water that a recently deceased person has been washed with. Gross or not, for better or worse, it's real great for magic. <laughs> sure, yeah. I gather it only in my work as a clergy person with consent from family members who gift it to me because I always volunteer my services as, mm -hmm. as clergy in death. Um, so many times people give it to me as a gift for being there. And yes, for those listening, they do know that it's going to be used for witchcraft. And so mm -hmm. they know that it's being put out there for people. Fully consensual. Yeah. yeah. And most pagan folk are delighted to know that, that an item that's really hard to come by is being put out there for the community. Yes, I will be making orders very, very soon. Yay. Because I, I, have, a, I have an apothecary that also has sort of a curio section. And um, it's not curios that are not used by me. It's just stuff like, you know, chicken feet and scorpions and stuff that I do use, but they don't really count as herbs, you know, uh, or barks or spices or anything of that nature. So I'll be making probably a considerable purchase soon. I'm very interested in a lot of the uh, products that you have to offer on your website. Well, right now that's my only income so i'm grateful for every order and i also use that to offset the cost of the library and food pantry that our coven keeps in the community 
Um, we do such wonderful things as buy up pregnancy tests and plan B and put them where people who need them can get those for free. And we also, well, we, I, I probably give away more than half of my services and tickets to workshops in a month. If anyone needs something that they see and they have a financial barrier, just reach out to me directly and I will make sure that you get it for nothing. Um, so orders do offset all of those good and wonderful things. So real quickly, tell my listeners uh, a few of the other offerings on your website. Oh gosh, um, I have all kinds of stuff. Yeah, you do. Different, You've got a big giant shop. Different instances that I make um, for evoking and banishing um, spirit calming. Think of that as an antidepressant for the recently deceased. It's pretty <laughs> wonderful. Um, I have a few spell kits now that's new. And you with, do custom uh, spells as well. I do. Uh, there's, a, there's a seance kit on there with, with mirrors that I hand etch. So some of this magic is a little complicated, so I do all the magic I can on my end, mm -hmm. so it's set up for you. And just all kinds of fun stuff. Candles that um, I make for different purposes. Like there's one that I often need. You at home can't see, but you can. It's my grimoire candle. I burn it while I write. Your grimoire candle, excellent. Its purpose is helping you retain and process occult knowledge as you study. It also smells really nice because <laughs> I like I like uh, mixing fragrances. It's one of my favorite things. But all the wicks that I use for my candles are wooden, and I cut them from used caskets. That is one of the my favorite things that I read on your website. The wicks for her candles. If you did not catch that she cuts from used caskets mm -hmm. i mean i gotta say like you know i'm a i'm a goth kid from the 80s kind of a you know sort of a thing uh so the macabre part of me loves that but the witch part of me feels that in my soul and and what is your website you want to look me up uh, i have a link tree and it's just backslash a crow in the dead and you can find most of my stuff but my website is just mortellus.com pretty straightforward pretty straightforward you were talking about sort of liking the goth kid aspect. I love recycling these things. I sort of, I hate that you go to a pagan shop or whatever and you, you always see coffin nails at the very least. <sighs> okay, I gotta, I gotta soapbox it. Most, okay, step most up. Most coffin nails that you find are made, right? We've all seen mm -hmm. the ritual process you take. You take nails, you bless them, you bury them in a cemetery, all mm -hmm. that stuff. Sure, that has its place and it's great. I do think it should be very clear that that's what they are. Um, all the coffin nails I have on my website are actual coffin nails from used coffins that I pulled. From actually yes. being nailed into a coffin. I did not yeah. bury them in a cemetery or do any rituals on them. I just pulled them out with a hammer. <laughs> Maybe that's less magical. But <laughs> I mean, they've been in a coffin. That's pretty magical. So some. Some spells and rituals do really require an authentic item like that. So if you're looking for it, I do put them there. I never have a lot. Um, it's $5 for one, which seems like a lot, but not really if, if I only have 20 or 30 at a time. And sure. I spend more on labels and packaging most of the time. But <laughs> Yeah. How often are you able to sort of harvest coffin nails? Oh, not often. I, I was going to say, it's probably not the kind of thing that uh, you well, can just do on the weekends. A lot of people ask, 
where do you get these items? Are you like robbing cemeteries? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, you know. <laughs> there's a couple of things at play here that might be interesting for your listeners. Oh my God, do you actually rob cemeteries? <laughs> yes, I do. I, I like work and hair at, in, the, in the woods at night. Yeah. <laughs> um, coffins, caskets, they're often rented out to families. If, say, your loved one's being cremated mm-hmm. and you want to save some money and do a direct cremation, your loved one is likely cremated in a, in a cardboard container. Right. Um, very environmentally friendly, very cost effective for families. But if you want to have a viewing before and you want to have like a lovely casket with your loved one in it, what they'll do is they'll rent you one. Um, so they have one that d- gets recycled for that purpose until it gets stained or ruined or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get decommissioned. And those decommissioned rental caskets often wind up in landfills or sometimes funeral homes will will benevolently sell them very cheaply to a family that's struggling. Um, so I, I often buy those up if they're just too ruined for resale or something. Um, also, if someone is disinterred, dug up mm-hmm. for either forensic purposes or to be moved to a new location, which happens occasionally, not, not often. I just have feelers out in the community, people let me know because those remains are often reinterred in a new burial container and the old ones will be remanded to the dump so yeah so i keep an eye out for those and buy them if a funeral home gets for example shuttered by the police for mm-hmm. the funeral director was embezzling or something everything yeah. in there will get sold at, at a state auction or whatnot so, I buy so you have ethically harvested nails. Uh, <laughs> Correct. Yes. And and what is a necromancer if not a recycler? So exactly, exactly. Reuse, reanimate, recycle. So, can you talk a little bit about your necromancy sort of death magic? Uh, what it is you actually might be doing? I have a lot. I know a lot of my listeners are like, turn it up. You know, <laughs> I want to hear this part. I think a lot of people are doing necromancy every day and just don't think about it. I mean, what are you, what are you doing with that mantle in your house with the picture of your relatives that you light a candle at? What is an ancestor altar? What is mediumship? Maybe these are all death magic. You're working with the dead. If your magic involves the dead, it is necromancy. That is my my shake on it. It's my two cents. I think that when we do ritual to uh, honor the anniversary of someone's death. When we do Samhain rituals or Hallows, we're doing necromancy. At Christmas, when we say, oh, Grandma, you could see the kids now, we're doing necromancy. For me, my practice is a lot about not what the dead can do for me, but what I can do for the dead. I work a lot in transition because we live in a world where the deceased don't get the same kinds of rites and rituals that they might once have. And particularly, we're not getting magical rituals. We're not getting necessarily even the rituals we want. So I do a lot of after the fact work. I work a lot in cemeteries. I work a lot with um, doing psychopomp work. A a big part of my practice is gifts of grave goods. Um, Gifts of grave goods? What is the purpose of a grave good? When you bury someone or cremate them or whatever with 
objects, why are we doing it? So they have them in the afterlife. So we're sending a lot of people to the underworld with nothing but the clothes on their back. We're not even giving them coins to pay the fare across the river. So they're wandering the banks. So I like to pack these little care packages of change of clothes, a few coins, um, some food, a book, little things like that. And then I'll take a bit of earth from a grave so I can associate it with a particular person. Mm -hmm. Place it inside and I will either bury it or burn it, depending. So right. that that person can receive those items. So gifts for your loved ones in the afterlife. Do that. <laughs> Give them stuff so that they're not just wandering around like hobos on the banks of the river hoping they can find a coin to pay the ferry. Jesus Christ. Dead hobos. <laughs> no way. I mean, seriously. And does it get worse than that? I'm I'm always the weirdo that puts like something in the casket. Usually it's a letter or a note. Uh, and I've actually put a Twinkie in a casket once, you know, but, and I didn't realize those were grave goods, but they are because if you find yourself as a hobo on the banks of the river Styx, you got something to snack on. Something that I do often, the one thing that I often do is um, I'll take coins and I, I particularly love like Liberty Dimes. I, I, I just love a sure. dime. It just vibes with me, but whatever you like. And it doesn't even have to be real money. If we look at Greek practice, people would have been married with obols, which is like a sixth of a drachma, which okay. is two, two coins on the eyes was one coin shy the going rate for a prostitute so it's a <laughs> <laughs> so your your two coins could be placed on the eyes or in the mouth um but you needed two coins for your fare um but we know from a lot of of burials that uh, people were often buried with fake coins coins that couldn't sure. have been used for currency but were used for that purpose so whatever kind of coin you like what about your like plastic mardi gras coins or whatever right. whatever makes you happy um and i will make them as offerings to chiron or I, I prefer to call them um the conductor because there are a variety of conductors in a variety of cultural practices and i'll make that offering a fair for whomever needs it and i generally establish it for whomever has been waiting the longest so that these forgotten dead from history can have their entry into the underworld. I think that kind of demystifies a little bit the concept of necromancy, that it's not someone that's just raising someone out of the dead from a, a grave, but it's something that we probably practice on a regular basis, as you said, every day without even realizing it. Stereotyping is bad, and we stereotype death magic yeah. horribly. Necromancers, even even today, I use that word somewhere, and someone will, someone oh, sure. cringes oh, at sure. it every time. Right, but the magic of necromancy is not what people imagine, and a lot of the time, the stereotype has become part of its story, where people look at grave dirt or they look at coffin nails as being baneful mm -hmm, magic. Mm -hmm. But one of the best and most common uses for either of those things is protection. Right. Drive a coffin nail into the frame of your home's front door. What have you done? You've sealed that space like closing the lid of a coffin. Mm -hmm. 
But remember, you might be closing things in right. and not just closing things out. Right. So be comfortable and confident in your space. Toss a little grave dirt at the back of your children as they get on the bus and your ancestors protect them all day. Right. Put a little in the sole of your shoe. Necromancy can be great for healing magic, which maybe sounds counterintuitive, but you have someone lying in a hospital bed make an offering to the gods of death and ask that they simply refuse them admission into the lands of the dead until they have time to heal. You can't die if you're refused by the gods of death. Right. Or you have someone who's suffering, someone who has a long-term condition. I myself suffer from rheumatoid arthritis. It's a painful condition. It's a mm. chronic pain condition. And if anyone's listening to our, our health care today in America, yeah. you're not... <laughs> <laughs> I bet it's fun. Yeah, yeah. Not taking care of us. Yeah. But the dead are beyond pain. They're beyond suffering. Mm -hmm. And they need energy. They need brave goods. And they need the effects of life. They need vitality. They need uh, gifts of energy. So you ask the dead who are beyond pain to deflect it for you, to carry some of it for you. They can't feel it. Mm -hmm. It just hits them first. And in exchange, give them those gifts of coins and food and clothes and goods that they need. And there's, there's, right, there's good work to do there. Healing work, protective work, loving work. Um, even spells that we look at historically as being negative do have positive impacts. Like we look at things like uh, the Swedish black arts, the, the black books. You see spells like to inflict stillness, which um, inflicts the stillness of the dead on someone. We look at that as painful, but consider someone who is not necessarily comfortable meditating. All children with ADD, uh, anyone with sort of a nervous condition, uh, Parkinson's, etc. You could use that sort of magic to give someone the calm that they need to function better. I don't think that any magic is bad or good. I do think that magic is comparable to a force like electricity. It's in how we use it that defines its goodness. It's in the person practicing it and their intentions and what they attempt to do with it. We get to make those choices every day. Sure, anybody can pick up necromantic materials and look at the magic and look at the awful stuff and go, this magic is for hurting people and this magic is for controlling the dead and this magic is for X, Y, and Z. Or they could choose to read it with a different set of eyes. Necromancy always foundationally, it, it always functions on reversals. It's always about turning things around backwards, flipping them on their head. So simply change your perspective of how you're looking at this kind of thing. And fundamentally, you're already doing necromancy. God, I really hope everyone's been paying attention because this has been so revelatory for me on so many different levels.
I'm going to list the links to where you can find Mortellus on the web, how to contact them, how to learn more about them, et cetera, et cetera, like I do with all of my guests. And I, I don't know where to start with the beginning of my very heartfelt thank you to my very interesting, intelligent, esteemed, uh, fascinating guest, Mortellus. Uh, whom I wish to speak to again very soon because this has been absolutely wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for being here with us today, Mortellus. I really, really enjoyed this. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed chatting with you and I, I look forward to getting to come back. Also, thank you so much to my very sweet friend, Amy Blackthorne, for once again hooking me up with such an amazing guest and now my friend. So thank you very much, Amy. I appreciate you. And everybody that's here on the mics right now loves you dearly. Hearts to Amy always. Hearts to Amy always. There's a brand new episode every Wednesday. And as always, if you have questions or comments about this or any other episode of this podcast, you can always find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Please say this with me, because if you've ever listened before, you know what I'm about to say. Wear your goddamn motherfucking mask. Take care of yourself and your fellow human beings. May you never hunger and may you never thirst as above, so below. If you liked it, tell a friend and subscribe. I'm Molly Dyer. This is Witchcraft Off the Beaten Path.